You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 21. If you've been following our story through the book of Kings, last week we talked about the man Naboth, who was introduced to us for the first time. Naboth was a, a vine dresser, and he had the very unfortunate occasion to have his farm right next to Jezebel and Ahab's summer home. So Naboth had a vineyard, and Ahab saw the vineyard, and Ahab wanted the vineyard. And Naboth said, no, I can't do this. The Lord forbid, this is my father's inheritance. He realized that the land was a gift from God. It was to stay in the family. He was not poor, didn't need to sell the land. And so he said, no, I can't because of the word of God. stood on biblical foundations. And when that happened, Ahab went home and he pouted. And his wife asked what was wrong, and he told her what was wrong, misrepresented the facts, but she said, don't worry, sweetheart, I'll take care of you. And so she did. So Jezebel has it arranged that Naboth is killed and murdered, his family is liquidated, and now Ahab can have exactly what he wants. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. Look with me, if you would, at verse number 15 of 1 Kings 21. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, so to take possession of it. I just want you to notice here quickly that when Ahab hears the fact that Naboth is dead, he doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't say, oh my word, how did that happen? I'm so surprised by this. No questions, wasn't looking for answers. The first thing that he did when he heard that Naboth was dead was he went and he grabbed the vineyard. That's it. Naboth's dead? Good. He goes and he grabs the vineyard. He is cold and he is calloused. So now we come to verse number 17 of our text. And for some of you, this will not matter. But verses 17 through 29, they form in what uh, we call an inclusio, which is a literary device, um, oftentimes Bible Writers will use this, especially in the Old Testament. And inclusio is a bracket. And what happens is, is that in this portion of Scripture, it is bracketed by two of the same statements. It happens quite often, more than you would think. Now, stay with me. I, I know that some of you don't care about this, but it's worth noting this morning. In, in, in chapter 21, verse 17, we have the phrase, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And by the end of that chapter, verse number 28, we have the same phrase that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. You, you see it there. And what the writer is doing is he's bracketing in this narrative, this story, to make a point. And it happens all the time in Scripture. You should look for it. It's here. But what I find amazing about this, that maybe you still don't care about, but just stay with me, that inside this bracket is another bracket. And it's Ahab's responses to the word of God. And so we'll see that as it unfolds this morning, 
And I think we'll see it again in the New Testament as we continue the message this morning. So, verse number 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. And there's a play of words happening here. Jezebel earlier said, Ahab, arise, go take the vineyard. Then it says, he arose and went down. And now we find God saying to Elijah, arise, go down and meet Ahab. Because at this point, Ahab and Jezebel totally believe they have just gotten away with murder. Right? The documents have been shredded. Nobody is the wiser. Naboth and his family are liquidated. It's all good. Not even does the prophet Elijah know what happened. This is a surprise for him. The word Lord comes to him. When we were kids, we used to watch a show um, called Stalock 13. How many folks remember that show? All right. All the folks 50 and older. All right. So, so I was a child back then. But if you remember the story... It was about these prisoners of war, and Colonel Clink was the commander, right? And he had this guard named Schultz. And if you don't know it, you should see it. It was really an entertaining episode. But every time they needed to bribe Schultz, they gave him a piece of chocolate or something, and his line was, I know nothing, I see nothing. You know, that, that was the deal. And you could count on him knowing nothing. And here now is the prophet Elijah, And he knows nothing. He has no idea what has transpired, but the word of the Lord comes to him and says, listen, go down to Naboth's vineyard because Ahab is there. Naboth has been murdered. There's a great reminder here when we see the word of the Lord coming to Elijah that no one is exempt from the scrutiny and the judgment of God's word. Nobody. Not Ahab, not Jezebel, not you or me. The word of the Lord comes and says, Elijah, go down. I know what's happened. I know what's going on. The whole thing has been exposed. Many of us in our churches have grown up Uh, at least hearing or memorizing Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. And it goes something like this. You'll recognize it, I'm sure. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It's a great verse, but it doesn't end there. The next verse which follows that reminds us that the word of God scrutinizes all of our life says this, literally, Hebrews 4.13, literally says, and there is not a created thing not manifest before him. Not one created thing that God does not know about. And then he says this, but all things are naked and open in his eyes, with whom is our reckoning. As we start this story this morning, you and I need to know that no one is exempt from the all-seeing eye of God and being exposed and scrutinized by his word. And that word comes, and thank God, it comes at times when it's a comfort to us. 
But sometimes it comes to us and it smarts and it exposes and it shows what the problem is. And so God says, okay, Elijah, go down, find Ahab. And so he goes down. Verse number 20, Ahab now is plotting where he's going he's to plant the cucumbers. He's got it all planned out. Verse number 20. And Ahab said to Elijah, as Elijah shows up, Hast thou found me, O my enemy? You've got to love this guy. This is the first response now that we see from Ahab in our text when he's confronted by the word of God, and his response, his reaction is one of resistance. He says, okay, here comes Elijah, and the first thing he says, knowing now what's going to happen, knowing that he's been exposed by the word of God, says, have you found me, O my enemy? This is not new for him. Do you remember when the drought was happening? Elijah finds him again, and he says to Elijah, the king Ahab says this, he says, are you the one that troubles Israel? He's a master of playing the victim. He's a master at blame shifting. Listen to me this morning. I am fully aware, and you are aware, the Bible talks about victims. People in this fallen world are victimized. People in this room have been victimized. We live in a sin-cursed, fallen world where there is injustice and there are people in this church that you have been hurt. You have truly been a victim. And I understand that. I'm not talking about that. The Bible is clear. The stories we have in Scripture of innocent people, in this story, Naboth suffering. Why? For standing on the Word of God. And so the Bible is raw, and it recognizes this. And the glory of the Word of God is this, that even those of us who have been victims by others, through the gospel of Christ and the glory of Christ, we can go on from being a victim to being victorious in our walk for Him. Why? Because this God redeems everything. Everything. Your past, your pain, your suffering, it is not for naught. And this God takes the ashes of our life and makes them something beautiful. And it's glorious. And so, this morning, I am not talking about the victim card like that. We recognize, we know, we understand. What I'm talking about is the guy or the girl who is always saying, Have you, oh my enemy? Are you the one that's troubling Israel? Casting blame on other people. Listen, it doesn't work in the real world. Do you understand that? Because if you live your life blaming everyone for your problems, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my siblings, my siblings are brothers and sisters, by the way. That's just dawned on me. Usually. Um, My situation. My friend, you get stuck there. And you stay there. It doesn't work in the real world. And it doesn't work with God. Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And look what Elijah says to Ahab the king in verse number 20. I have found thee. Because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. He said, I'm not your problem. I'm not your enemy. You have been found out. Right? You are not the victim. You are the perpetrator in this. 
And it doesn't work with God because God, God's word exposes our hearts and our lives. Romans 3.19 says this, speaking of the word of God, the law of God, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And the word of God comes to Ahab and says, listen, I found you because you've been selling yourself out for evil and wickedness. Okay? So get the picture. This is what's happening. So now verses 21 through about verse number 24, we see that judgment will fall. And I want you to pay close attention to this because this judgment on Ahab and his house is horrific. It's terrible. It's so bad that when I let our folks know we're going to be this week, a guy wrote me and said, wait a minute, you're talking about this passage of Scripture and the title is Amazing Grace? That doesn't make sense. And it doesn't. Listen to the judgment that's going to fall on Ahab and Jezebel. Verse number 21, the word of the Lord says this, Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab all those that are males. King James is a little different there. I'm going, to stick, I'm going to stick with male, okay? Whatever you want to do, you can do with that. But what he means is every male in your house is going to die, right? Verse 22. And I will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of, um, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dogs shall eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Okay, listen. If this is the news that you're getting, this is really bad news. This is... Terrible. It's horrific. And, and, and what they're saying there is tragic. It's tragic. And so we read and think, oh my goodness, that is harsh, that's terrible. And something interesting happens here because the narrator of the story pauses because he knows we all think this is horrible and he's going to give a little insert here to say to us, as bad as this is for Ahab, Ahab deserves this. Look what the narrator says. Verse number 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. He says, listen, there was nobody like Ahab. None like him. There's a meme that goes around that says, um, you're a special kind of stupid. Right? And something happens, you're a special kind of stupid. Ahab was a special kind of wickedness. There was none like him. And then he says that he sold himself out to wickedness. We use that phrase today. If I say to you, hey, that guy sold himself out for the company, or he sold himself out for that play, or they're sold out for that cause, we know that they gave everything in their means and their power and their ability to make something happen. Right? They're living for that. And here the Bible says for Ahab, he was living for wickedness. He goes on. He says in that verse, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And you say, aha, the woman. Right? It's her fault. Amen? No, smart boys. Don't, 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 don't. That's not what he's saying here. Certainly, she stirred him up. 
And he was incited to do evil, but it does not lessen his guilt, but it aggravates it because not only was he wicked, he was weak. Not only was he sinful, he was spineless. And then it says he's done very abominably. It's disgusting. He's followed after the idols of the people that God spewed out of the land. You know, the conquest of Canaan, those people stayed in the land for an extra 400 years that God gave them the opportunity to repent. After 400 years, they were so evil and vile that God said, you, you are going to be spewed out of the land. And the writer says, that's Ahab. He's followed in those steps. He, the judgment is justified. Why? Because he is the worst. And, and, the, and the narrator wants you and I to know that as you hear this horrific judgment that will fall on his head, he's telling us and reminding us that, listen, Ahab and Jezebel, the way they've lived their life, they deserve this. There is no redeeming factor for Ahab. There is not a virtue that he has that counteracts his vices. You know, there are people who say, ah, that guy, man, he's a jerk, but... He's a decent father, right? Or that woman, she's crazy, but she brushes her teeth. Right? There, there, there's something that we can say, okay, there is something redeeming about that person. We can see a bright side. Not for Ahab. He is the worst. And this judgment will fall, and he deserves every last drop of it. Now, Ahab hears this. The narrator's just told us he deserves this. Look at verse number 27. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and laid in sackcloth and went softly. Do you remember when he heard about the death of Naboth, he grabbed the vineyard. Now he hears about the damnation of God on his life, and he grabs his vest, and he rips it, and he mourns. That idea of sackcloth, if you know your Bible, it was a rough garment, like burlap, had hair. It, it was uncomfortable. Everything he does is a sign of repentance. And knowing the story, knowing what the narrator just said, This event in this chapter is shocking. It is so shocking that it almost seems to indicate in verse number 28, and I know, I know, God is not surprised by anything. But listen to verse 28. And the word of the Lord, again, this bracket, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbled himself before me? It's as if God says, hey, 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 Elijah, you're not going to believe this. Get a load of this. Oy vey. Uh, can, really, can you understand? Here is Ahab. Look at He has just humbled himself. He has just um, put on sackcloth. He's fasting. He is repenting before me. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. You say, well, was his repentance real? You know, is this just jailhouse religion? I don't know. God said he humbled himself and said it twice. And not only that, there's a stay of execution on his life. We have to assume, not even assume, 
his repentance here was sincere. It was maybe for a moment and not lasting, but it was serious. Maybe temporary, but it was serious. But may I ask you this? How is that different from our repentance? You've been there. I've been there convicted. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I hate this. I hate this about myself. I'm repenting. Forgive me. And then within days or hours, we're back there. But this was enough. And God says, look at what he's done. And for us, we understand this. It's an invite to go deeper into that grace that has been extended. So, Ahab's first response to the word of God is resistance. His second response is remorse and repentance. And it's mind-blowing. But now listen to me. Let me tell you this morning what is more shocking than Ahab's response. It's God's. It's God's. Look at verse number 29. Seest thou how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. You know what this is? This is grace. Judgment has not been canceled. It's been postponed. But we see here God's readiness to relent. Um, Ian, when we were talking yesterday, we were talking about how God is ready to relent. What was the phrase that you said the old-time pastor would always say about God's willingness for those to repent? Despair of no man. Why can we despair of no man? Because this God is ready to relent in judgment. And so what it means is there is no one who is beyond the hope of Jesus Christ. No one. And, and we sit and we read this story and you say, um, yeah, but Ahab, he doesn't deserve this. Yeah. And that's the point. That's why we call it Grace. Ahab deserves judgment. Ahab is guilty before a holy God. Ahab has been exposed, and Ahab deserves to die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. He does deserve this, but may I remind you this morning, my friend, that Christ came not to condemn the world. Why? Because the world is already condemned. Already. He doesn't say, ah, the good one, the clean one, the upstanding citizen. No, the world is condemned. No, Ahab doesn't deserve it. And this is our problem this morning. We sit here and we think, he doesn't deserve it, but I do. I mean, that guy, that girl, you know them, you know their situation, you know their difficulties, They deserve that, but me. Oh, I deserve grace. This morning, we must come to grips with the idea of grace until it grips our hearts. Because amazing grace, when we get it, changes 
everything. And when it's properly understood, it will change us. Now, this morning, I want to do just one thing quickly as we close out this message. Because as I was thinking about this text, there was something that came to mind from the New Testament about thinking about grace being extended to Ahab. And I do think this is a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 20. So we're going to turn there for just a moment. But before we get to Matthew 20, we have to know what happened in Matthew 19 because um, there is a context. Matthew 19 is a story of the rich young ruler who comes to Christ and says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Hmm. Jesus gives him a list of things. He says, I've done all of those things. And Jesus says, okay, go sell your stuff and follow me. And he says, I can't do that. Because he was covetous. That was really the problem. And when he walks away, Peter says, hey, Lord, we left everything. What do we get? And it's funny because Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus says, well, the 12 apostles will have a, a unique place of authority in the kingdom. And then everyone who comes after you, they will receive a hundredfold of family and friends and lands and eternal life. And so he says it's all worth it. But in response to Peter's question, he says this, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so um, he's answering Peter's questions when we get to chapter 20. And this is another interesting thing. That last shall be first and the first shall be last. We find it in Matthew 19, verse 30. We also find it, the same phrase, in Matthew 20, verse 16. It is called an inclusio. He's going to make a point about grace. So let's just look at this story real quick and then make three applications will be done. In light of what Peter said, what about us? The first one's in. We're the first. What do we get? Jesus says the first shall be last, the last shall be first. And then he tells the story of the householder. Chapter 20, verse number 1. Here's what Matthew tells us. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. It's harvest time. Farmers, you got under, it's harvest time. The sun is shining. You work. So you go out early, 6 in the morning, the sun's up. We're working a 12-hour day. So in this story, there's a householder who has a vineyard. He needs help. And so what he does is he goes to the marketplace. You remember those pictures? Or maybe you remember during the Depression when guys would gather together in one spot and, and people would pull up and say, hey, I need some workers here. Right? I need four guys. You four guys come work. Right? Now that guy's too skinny. That guy looks like you got a bad smile. I don't know about him. We'll take you four guys. Right? That, that, that's what's happening here. These are day laborers. They don't even have the minimum security of being a slave. Because a slave has a place to live, something to eat in Bible. These guys had nothing. So they're coming at 6 in the morning hoping that someone would hire them. So the guy goes out. 6 in the morning, he says, listen, uh, I'll hire you. Look at verse number 2. And when he had gathered with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Now stop there. You say, oh, a penny a day? Is this guy Dutch? I don't know. He's Jewish. I don't know if he's Dutch. But the penny a day wasn't a bad deal. When, when they use this story, a penny a day was a full day's wage. So here are guys without hope, without a job, without a future. Six in the morning, this guy comes in. Listen, I need work in the vineyard. If you come and work for me today, starting now, I will pay you a full day's wage. And they agree, and everyone's happy. They go out to work. Look at verse number three. And he went out about the third hour, 
So that's 9 o'clock, and find some more guys just standing there. And he says, hey, listen, you need work? Come to my field, and I'll, I'll give you what's right. But he doesn't tell them what he's going to pay them. He doesn't make the same agreement as he did with the first guy. So they agree. They go out. Verse number 5, he goes out again, the 6th and the ninth hour. Now it's 12 o'clock noon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He does the same thing. Doesn't promise them anything. And then in the 11th hour, verse number 6, it's 5 o'clock. It is almost quitting time. Now remember, a couple guys start at 6 in the morning. This guy, at 5 o'clock, he says, hey, why aren't you working? And he says, no one hired us. These guys were so undesirable, they were there all day long, and no one would hire these guys. No one. And so the good master says, I'll take you, you, and you. Come work for me, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they work an hour. After that, verse number 8, it's quitting time. And so the, the homeowner, the house owner, the, the vineyard guy says to his steward, hey, it's, let's paint these guys. And let's line them up from the last to the first. Sound familiar, right? Matthew 19, we're going to see it again, from the last to the first. So the guy who works for an hour is standing up. Here's the line. And he's standing up. All right, all right, here we go, boys. First up, the guy who works for one hour, come and get your pay. He's like, all right, thank you, sir. He puts his hand out. And the steward gives him a full day's pay. Now, now listen, if you're that guy, if you're that girl, what are you thinking? Woohoo! I just hit the jackpot. The truth is, no one in this room denies that this event was generous. Above generous. Why? Because one hour of pay could not feed his family. But for one hour work, he gets a full day's wage. This first guy up. So now, the next guy up, he started at 3 o'clock. He's standing there thinking, well, what are you thinking? Okay, if you and I are the people who start at 6 in the morning, and I'm sitting here, it's like, man, that first guy, oh my goodness, he worked an hour and he got a full day, one penny, what are you thinking? You're doing the math? How much are you making? 12 pennies. That, that, I'm just telling you, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, this guy's good. I'm going to get 12 pennies. And so the guy at 3 o'clock comes up. You know what he gets? He gets a penny. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe he messed up on that. Guy at 12 o'clock comes up. He gets a penny. Guy at 9 o'clock comes up. It's a penny. And the guy who worked for 12 hours gets a penny. What are you thinking if you're the guy who worked for 12 hours? Call my union rep. Yes? No. Isn't our thought, this is my thought, that's not fair. I worked all day long. I was the first one in on this. Peter's first one in on this. This guy came at the end. You're going to tell me that this guy is going to get the same thing that I got. And they start grumbling. They start getting together. They're around the water cooler saying, can you believe this? The householder hears these things. We'll remember verse number 13. But he answered one of them and said, friend, 
I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take what thine is and go thy way. I will give unto him this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, the first last. For many be called, but few are chosen. These men in the parable, they're not objecting because of his injustice. He didn't do anything wrong. The fact is he was just. He agreed with the first guy for a penny. He didn't say anything to the last guy. They're upset at his generosity. His generosity. Now let's be honest this morning. Even after hearing that story, in my heart, I still think this is unfair. But this is the point of the parable. The point of the parable is this. That God's kingdom does not operate on the grounds of human achievement. It operates on divine grace. Can I tell you something? Divine grace is so much better. It's so much better. These workers despised the showing of mercy because they felt it made these other guys equal to them. Right? The guy at 6 in the morning saying, wait a minute. That guy doesn't have a right to anything. I've been, you've made that guy one hour equal with me. And now they're upset about it. But he's missed the point. Here's why. The guy at 6 o'clock in the morning, guess what he deserved? Nothing. Nothing. He was a day laborer. He wasn't even a slave. The good master owed him nothing. And yet, by his grace, gave him what he said. The guy at 5 o'clock, he owed him nothing. Guess what? Ahab, God owes you nothing. Jezebel, God owes you nothing. And we say, wait a minute. I'm not Ahab. I'm not Jezebel. And this is our problem. Because we are. Your sin, my sin, has separated us from the God of heaven who loved us and gave himself for us. And listen to me. Quit with the facade. In your heart and my heart, those of us who have knowledge and have wisdom and we have the word, how many times do we hourly sin against him with our thoughts and our attitude and our spirit? He owes us nothing. And the problem is, we start begrudging people like, well, I'm not him and I'm not her. And we've missed the entire idea of grace, unmerited favor to every sinner who repents and believes. And it's glorious. And when we forget that, we are in trouble. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. And that's what makes grace amazing. Because instead of justice, I receive mercy. And not only do I receive mercy, I receive everything. Everything. Everything that Christ has, I become a joint heir with Jesus. So here's the point. Whether you buy it or not, whether you still think this is unfair, this idea of grace, because of it, we must think differently. Christian, 
Everything that we get in this life, everything, everything that's good, it's a bonus. It's a, and listen, we got good things, man. You got someone who loves you, you got a good thing. You got clothes on you, you got a good thing. You got a place to pillow your head, you got a good thing. You got a meal a day, you got a good thing. You're making more than a penny a day, you got a good thing. And if we understand grace, that what I deserve as a sinner who, is sh- who shook my fist in the face of God and became an enemy combatant of his that deserves hell, everything else is a bonus. It's a bonus. No matter what my condition, my difficulty, my danger that I face, grace, unmerited grace, has been bestowed upon me. Not only bestowed, it has been lavished upon me. Lavished freely poured out on his children, we must think differently. We have an entitlement mentality in our world today that everybody owes me something, and it's, it's crept into Christianity. My old pastor, his dad, always made up his own um, proverbs. Always, and they were really actually good. He actually made up a joke about my last name one time. He said, oh, your name's Dresser. I said, yeah. He said, there used to be a woman who went, came to a church, and she was an extremely large woman, and a new pastor was in the back. And, and as, as she was leaving, he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm so bad with names. I can't remember names. And um, the woman said, it's okay. It's no surprise. I'm, a, I'm an extremely large lady, and the biggest thing on my body is my dress. Just remember Mrs. Dressler. So said, well, thank you. So the next week, she came out the door, and he greet, he, at the door, he said, hey, go, so, much, so good to see you, Mrs. Butler. And... Uh, <laughs> He made up that joke, a really great joke. Um, but here's what his, his, his proverb was this. Blessed is the man who expects nothing. He shall never be disappointed. Christian, if we could just stop and glory in God's grace. It's all plus, man. It's all plus. And so we must think differently. Number two, we must see people differently. See them differently in their importance, right? These guys were upset because grace had raised others to the same level. I've been working all day long. And the master says, yeah, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You see, grace helps us see people differently. As far as importance goes, guess what? In the economy of God's kingdom and grace, there is not red, yellow, black, and white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. It doesn't exist. Why? Because of grace. Undeserved grace. Therefore, it puts us all on the same level level playing field. Nobody in this church is better than anyone else in this church. You know what we are? We are one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. Period. Well, I'm the grand poobah slave. No, you're a slave. I'm a slave. We've been redeemed. We've been pulled out of the marketplace of sin. We have been given grace. We should see people differently in their importance, and we should see people differently in injustice. Some of you folks sit here and you think, oh, the gospel, the gospel. I'm so tired of hearing it's the gospel. Listen to me. If that's your idea, then you have never heard. You've grown weary of hearing what you've never heard. Because it's the gospel of grace that reminds me when injustice happens to me that I can freely forgive because of the gospel. Why? Because grace has been given to me. And here's what we think. 
well, I'm not so bad. I mean, that guy, he said this about me, or she said, and it really hurt my feelings. Okay, stop it. Stop it. How many times a day do you rip people apart with your own words? How many times today will you rip about, apart people in this church that you looked at and you saw and you say things that are unkind or, or wicked, but somehow it's okay for you and yet you can't forgive others who do exactly the same thing that you do? My friend, you don't understand grace. Well, how can I forgive them? They hurt me. How can I forgive them? They said that. Well, you can forgive them because grace has been lavished upon you. Therefore, forgiven people forgive. People who experience grace give grace. And maybe you've just not understood the grace that's been given to you. When they asked David Livingstone how he could treat the treacherous and and, uh, villainous African traders who were native there and the, the Arab traders who were just, I mean, they're cutthroat during that time. How can you treat them with patience and calm? This was asked to Livingstone. And here's what he said. I have fault to myself. Period. I have faults myself. Believer, if we walk away from today understanding I have faults myself, I have sinned against that brother, that sister, my spouse, my family, my kids, my parents, like others have sinned against me, it changes everything. It's called grace. And finally, we must live differently. Differently. If you're here this morning, understand this. You are, without Christ, you are condemned to an eternal hell. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to speak about it. Everyone wants to talk about heaven. Here's the problem. If there's a heaven to gain, there's a hell to shun. There's just no way around it. And and we don't speak glibly about it. Like, yeah, go to hell. No, it's a tragic thing. And we don't understand the holiness and the righteousness of God. And some of you folks, you say, yeah, 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 but I'm okay. No, you're not okay. If the price for your sin was the death of Jesus Christ on a cross, it means something. It means something. Why did he have to die like that? Well, he had to die like that because the wrath of God was to be poured out on your head and my head. The great preacher, um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, would preach the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as he preached that message, people would hold on to the front of their pews shaking because he would say things like this, The Almighty God of Heaven, you are being held by a gossamer web over the pits of hell, and at any moment you can fall in, and it's but by the grace of God that you go there. And so, we understand grace this morning. You and I deserve the wrath of God. We've got to live differently. And it's not going to be in your religion, in your good works, in your church, in the pastor, in the priest, in the imam. In the, it's, it's in none of that. Salvation comes through Christ alone. And when I understand grace, I live differently and say, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm trusting you and you alone. And for those of us who know him in this grace, we must live differently as well. I'll close with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ said that you be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God to him. Listen to me. When I grasp grace as someone who's lost, I run to Christ for salvation. And when I grasp and grip grace as a saved person, it has to change me. It, it, I was talking to a guy a couple months ago, 
and we were talking about our experience in growing up, and uh, he's a godly man. We were at a camp, actually, and I was speaking there, and we had some time to talk. And we started talking about the gospel. As we were talking about the gospel, I'm, st- I'm talking to this guy right in front of me. He's 50-something years old. I'm 50 years old. We're talking. And as we're talking about our salvation experience, I see him cry. I see a tear just run down his eye. And as I'm talking about salvation, I start, I'm not emotional, but I start. And here we are, two grown men, and we're weeping. I said, man, I don't know what's going on. He said, I'll tell you what's going on, Rick. We were saved. We got saved. And it changed everything about us. And for too many of us, we have moved away from the grace of God, and we've forgotten that we deserve judgment, and now we got saved. We are saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. And someday we will ultimately and eternally be saved when I shall see him face by face. I'll look at him and I'll know that I am redeemed. Now listen to me. Grace is amazing. It's amazing. Let it. You grip it. You chew it up. You think about it. And then let it grip your heart. And I promise you this. You'll have to think differently. You'll have to treat people differently. And you and I will have to live differently. Maybe our problem is simply this. Grace is not so amazing anymore. Ahab needs it. Yeah. Hello, Ahab. Jezebel needs it. Yep. Hello, Jezebel. Rick needs it. And you need it. And it's amazing. Let's pray.